Hello and welcome to another episode of How Was It Really? The podcast from Sydney University History Department that pulls history apart to see how it works. I'm Nick Eckstein, a historian in the History Department at Sydney University. As always, my co-host is Sophie Loy-Wilson, also a historian in the History Department at Sydney. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Nick. Well, as always, we have a wonderful guest, once again chosen from amongst our colleagues in the department, uh, and we're going to be talking about an aspect of her work today. But before we get to our guest, as always, too, we have a leading question that is going to shed light and insight on a knotty historical problem. So, Sophie, what is today's question? We're going to be asking, why did the duck go to the Canadian Supreme Court? Makes a change from the chicken, I suppose. Correct. We're seriously going to ask that. Seriously. Before we get to that question, though, as always, we want to introduce our guest. So Dr. Miranda Johnson is a historian of Indigenous peoples and settler colonialism in the Anglophone post-colonial world, whose specialist research addresses North American and Pacific societies in particular. Now, her first book, The Land is Our History, Indigeneity, Law and the Settler State, was published in 2016 by Oxford University Press. And it was shortlisted for not one, but two awards the New South Wales Premier's Prize in History and the New Zealand Historical Association's first prize, first book prize. And in July this year, Miranda won the Australian Historical Association's Hancock Prize for History, awarded to the best book published by a historian working in Australia in the past two years. Among other things, Miranda is now working on a second book, tentatively titled Claiming Modernity, Maori Reformers and Liberal Imperialism in the Interwar Pacific. Hi, Miranda. Thanks for coming today. Hi, Sophie and Nick. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great pleasure, Miranda. In fact, we've had you on the list from the very beginning, so this is really wonderful that we finally got you here. We're going to start, as always, by asking what the late John Clark might have described as the cosmic giant killer of a question before we get to your article, and that is, why are you here? By which I mean, why did you become a historian? Why are you a historian, and why are you not running some vast intercontinental conglomerate of some kind? Uh, I probably would never have had that future uh, <laughs> ahead of me, but um, I think I um, have become a historian and, and um, intend to continue uh, to write history and teach history um, because I love the combination of wrestling with complicated political questions um, and being able to do so in a narrative form that um, doesn't, uh, where there are no sort of expectations of uh, using specialist language jargon. Um, so it's that, that combination of wrestling with complicated questions and try, then trying to turn them into a kind of readable narrative that I really enjoy. Well, that's actually a wonderful segue into what we're actually going to talk about, isn't it? It is. So today what we really want to focus on um, is a new article that Miranda has written. And it's got the best title we've come across in a long time. It's called The Case of the Million Dollar Duck, A Hunter, His Treaty and the Bending of the Settler Contract. And indeed, one of our tasks is going to be to unpack that title. But before we get into that, this is a series of steppings back uh, as we do one thing before another. Um, I do want to do something else, though, which is to talk about where that article is being published and what that means, because it's an exciting discussion in itself. And we need to raise it ourselves, because I've got this suspicion that Miranda is going to be too modest to talk about it. 
The fact is, your article, Miranda, has been accepted for publication in the American Historical Review, and that is a very big deal indeed for a historian. And it's a big deal because the AHR, as we refer to it, is what you might call the journal of record for the entire profession of academic history as a whole. That's not, not just history in one university or one country, but the entire profession. It's part of the international conversation of historians. The AHR publishes historical research that is conceptually and or methodologically path-breaking, work therefore that is of interest to all historians, regardless of their own specialist field. So you could say, I suppose, that just as doctors read journals to keep up with the latest medical advances, historians look to the AHR to see what's going on in their field of inquiry. It's really hard to get published in the AHR, so the acceptance of your article is itself a big achievement. And what I wanted to ask you, Miranda, was a, an aspect of that process, which is how the review process works itself out for publication. What happens between the, the point at which you offer an article to the journal and the point where it comes out? Because it's a bit different from other journals, isn't it? Um, it seems to be, from my experience, um, a lot longer with a lot more uh, stages and levels involved. Um, so my article I first submitted over two years ago and just received notice of its acceptance about a month ago. So an over a, over a two-year process that's involved three uh, or four rounds of revision in response to initially the uh, uh, on-site editors, then the board of editors, a broader group of historians, and then finally, uh, external reviewers, which include uh, people in your field or cognate fields who will have specialist and generalist advice on whether they think the article is worthy of publication, uh, what needs to be done to improve it um, from a range of different angles. And that meant learning how to deal with a lot of often uh, contradictory advice from these reviewers um, and uh, taking some of what they said on board and really working out for myself what was key and, and what was really important to me about the article. Um, and so the article that I've uh, now submitted really does look quite different from what I initially submitted two years ago. Um, and I think the, 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 the exciting thing for me in that has really been about kind of finding my own voice and being able to make a stronger argument about the politics of the piece as well as the substance and content of the argument. So this is what we hear about in public discussion quite a lot, isn't it? This is the anonymous process of peer review. We hear it talked about in relation to scientists, but it happens, of course, just as much in the humanities and is really important for our work as historians. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I don't know who the reviewers were who reviewed my work, and apart from the editor of the journal itself, the reviewers who read my work don't know who I am. So it's double-blind review, and um, that means there's a lot of freedom to say exactly what you think. <laughs> which is sometimes terrifying, but can also be kind of liberating, I think. Now, it's a really fascinating discussion to hear, and it's a perfect entree, I think, to what we're going to talk about. Okay, so back to um, the title of this, 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 article, um, this article. The Case of the Million Dollar Duck, A Hunter, His Treaty, and the Bending of the Settler Contract. Um, it's also quite, quite a long article, um, Miranda. So can you, can you summarise for us just quickly what it's about? Certainly. Um, I would say there's kind of two, there's two levels you can talk about the article. In the first instance, 
it's a story about a Dene or indigenous duck hunter um, in the Northwest Ter Territories in Yellowknife in 1962 who's going out to trap muskrats, uh, sees a duck on a pond and shoots it, is pulled over by a cop um, and told that he's just breached the Migratory Birds Convention Act, an international treaty between Canada and the United States. Um, and he immediately says, I've got my treaty rights, I can hunt this duck wherever and whenever I want to. Um, and this in turn provokes a series of court cases from going from Yellowknife all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada in Ottawa, uh, in which the issue of what it means for Indigenous people to be claiming treaty rights in the 1960s in Canada starts to be uh, debated uh, in Parliament, more broadly in the media um, across Canada and by uh, the judiciary. So at one level it's a story, a, a kind of very small story that has these larger sort of legal and political ramifications. Um, and then at another level I think it's also a story about how we tell these histories of um, what uh, some people will refer to as subaltern actors, that is actors who don't necessarily or often get a voice in our history writing, um, what are the evidentiary problems or difficulties with doing so, and what are some of the ethical issues that telling stories of uh, subaltern actors raises. So I think, you know, Miranda's beautifully introduced uh, Nick's next question, which is all about that, the ethics of telling the story. So it might just lead to you, Nick. To... We can go perhaps to one of the central concepts in this discussion, which is an expression you use throughout the article. You talk about treaty talk. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, it's a way of trying to encapsulate a kind of what I call a vernacular political uh, practice and political discussion. Um, I'm trying to name uh, what it is that Indigenous peoples in Canada who had made historical treaties or their ancestors had made historical treaties with colonial authorities uh, how, it, how, how they talked about those treaties following the making of the treaties, why they considered them important, and particularly when they thought those treaties and the promises made in those treaties had been broken. Um, and so treaty talk is, is my way of trying to get at that uh, vernacular political discussion that um, can sometimes or perhaps too easily be erased from discussions of a higher level politics, a capital P politics. It's interesting reading this as a non-specialist, which is what I am. I do not work remotely in your area. And one of the things that struck me, therefore, so I'm a little bit like a lay reader in a sense with this, that whenever there's public discussion of a treaty with Aboriginal peoples, and we're familiar with this sort of theme from Australia, of course, a treaty is regarded as a positive thing. You think treaty, good. Um, you reveal it in your articles a much more ambivalent phenomenon, I think. It could even be said, tell me if I'm going further in your argument, it could even be seen to be oppressive sometimes. Indeed, one scholar you cite calls treaties an instrument of empire. Can you unpack that ambivalence a little bit for us? Yeah, so treaties um, were made in the 19th or even earlier, but primarily associated with the 19th and early 20th century in North America and New Zealand. Um, and uh, in one sense, um, colonial authorities were making them in order to make uh, processes of colonisation easier, quicker, uh, less violent. 
um, and kind of begin to incorporate indigenous peoples into these burgeoning settler states. Um, so uh, there's a, a, a definitely a critical take on treaties amongst a number of scholars in my field and activists too, um, a way of thinking about this uh, that might be useful for listeners is uh, to know that when Māori activists in New Zealand began to bring the Treaty of Waitangi back into circulation in the early 1970s, they often used this phrase, the treaty is a fraud. Um, a kind of similar expression to some North American activists who were criticising governments for not having upheld promises made to them, whether the promises were uh, specifically about educational or health benefits that they thought treaties should give them, or um, at a, an even deeper level that treaties were meant to or signify a recognition of the sovereignty of Indigenous uh, First Nations and that sovereignty was not being properly respected. So in the article you talk about the danger of thinking about Aboriginal culture as static and frozen in time. So tell us a little bit about what this means for scholars and why it matters so much if scholars think about Indigenous culture in this way. Um, so the uh, indigenous history hasn't been taught as a field uh, within the discipline for a very long time. Really, Aboriginal history began to be taught in Australia, for instance, in the 1970s. So the history of indigenous history uh, as a field of inquiry is relatively short. Um, and uh, that in itself is you know, a consequence of not seeing indigenous peoples as historical actors, as having histories that were worthy or that needed to be um, discussed or unpacked in any way, real way. And the problem I think for a lot of people working in this field is that then uh, the idea of who is and who isn't Indigenous becomes quite a fixed one and, and this has had really significant um, and painful consequences for Indigenous peoples in legal situations sometimes when they feel like they're identity is uh, being uh, authenticated or not by the court and uh, some listeners will know the Yorta Yorta case in Australia is an example of that problem of uh, seeing Indigenous peoples as uh, not having changed uh, as a consequence of colonisation, as a consequence of engaging with the world of globalisation. So um, I think for many historians working in the field of Indigenous history, it's really important to continue to um, push the idea that Indigenous peoples change, that their ideas of who they are change, that their engagements change over time, that the terms they use to describe themselves change. In the legal terms of the state, um, this is something you talk about in the article as well, the concept of the Treaty Indian had some specific meanings in Canada, didn't it? That's right, yes. So it was someone who had tacitly agreed to the terms of a possible coercive treaties, is that right? Yeah, it was understood as a kind of ward, wardship status. And the Treaty Indian conformed to the state's idea of Aboriginal culture, which, as we've observed, could be a static generalisation. The jargon would be essentialist. And so this has specific consequences legally, as you just explained, right? Yeah, so in the way that um, a number of scholars have um, talked about the Treaty Indian status, um, 
uh, is is a status that is um, what we would today think of as kind of derogatory and pejorative, that it denotes people who are not yet ready to be fully fledged citizens, not yet ready to be uh, self-ruling or self-determining. Um, and those uh, kind of contemporary critiques and observations are um, entirely valid. Um, I wanted to try and give the notion of Treaty Indian another life, um, uh, since it's a term that is sometimes, especially by older generations, still used today, um, and was a term that was used by the actors in my story, um, not as a, not only in the sense of somehow being lesser than those who were around them, but as actually having a content that was important to them. One of the other things you talk about in relation to treaties is the idea of them as being the basis of a modern origin story. So what you're really suggesting, I think, is that treaties encapsulate a story that settler states like to tell about themselves. Um, is that right? Is that what an origin story is? Can Perhaps you can define that for us. I took the phrase from uh, a US historian, Alexandra Harmon, who's talked about uh, treaties as origin stories in the context of the Pacific Northwest, where uh, indigenous peoples uh, quite famously in the, from the 1960s onward brought a series of cases uh, about their fishing rights stemming from treaties. And she argues that those treaties have um, helped uh, or served as uh, as stories by which Indigenous peoples tell uh, states and uh, the states that surround them um, their own their own political stories about how they've been constituted and how they can be recognised in the present as polities. Um, and I think that we can talk about treaties more generally in the way that you've just suggested um, as offering settler states, that is states founded in the dispossession of indigenous peoples, um, as, uh, as using treaties um, to tell a story about their own origins. Um, and uh, the example of New Zealand here is a good one, where the Treaty of Waitangi um, has served to tell a story about the founding of a nation uh, between two peoples, Māori and Pākehā, um, and is now celebrated annually on Waitangi Day. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so this is the idea that the treaty is not simply a kind of political negotiation or the consequence or the ending of a war, for instance, but actually has, uh, contains within it a kind of future, I suppose, for uh, for different polities to think about themselves as uh, political communities. And of course this is quite significant in the context of Indigenous history, whereas I mentioned before, given that Indigenous peoples haven't always been regarded as historical actors, as having a history, the idea that one is constituted as a political community um, is kind of a radical idea. You are listening to How Was It Really? So what you've just said, Miranda, about origin stories is fascinating. Uh, the treaty can be an entirely well-intentioned process. Uh, it can even be progressive politicians who want, inverted commas, to help Aboriginal peoples by recognising them, which you would also perhaps put in inverted commas. But you mentioned this containing a future, and it's clear that in a certain way, once you've signed a document like that, once you've signed your people up to it to be recognised, 
that you're kind of fixed. And so that creates its own problems. You point to another one in this very layered article indeed, that there is also the economic imperative on behalf of the Canadian government. This is a country, vast swathes of which are frozen and uh, they're, they're very, very rich in resources. But the government likes to think of them as, in a funny way, being beyond politics or beyond habitation when they're not really at all. And it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it seems I don't use the language of terra nullius the way it has happened in Australia. But there's something a little bit similar going on that you talk about this big part of Canada as a place not really settled and therefore up for grabs. And it's something you want to get at because there's lots of money to be made by digging it up. Um, so when you suddenly find that you've got a rather militant group of Aboriginal peoples suddenly defining themselves in the way that that new Dene nation that you discuss is doing, there's a dilemma for the government because suddenly you've got to recognise people and settlement at a place you said was a vacuum. So that's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, no, you're, you're quite right, Nick. Um, I don't think the Canadian government did think in the 1950s and 1960s that it really needed to negotiate or consult with Indigenous peoples in its northern hinterland. Um, I don't think it even thought that Indigenous peoples were capable, probably, of consulting or pre -political, negotiating. Pre-political, as you said they before. Were, they were pre-political and it were regarded as pre-political. Um, and so what's so remarkable about the story, um, as you've also alluded to, is that in the mid-1970s, uh, the Canadian North becomes a hotspot of political debate um, and argument um, when the Dene Nation declares itself a nation and forces the Canadian government to, uh, to reckon with it. Um, but I suppose also the story I was trying to tell in the article is that that uh, remarkable uh, kind of birth of politics, if you like, doesn't actually come from nowhere, that there's a prehistory to that 1970s activist story, and you can find it in these um, perhaps unexpected, often marginalised legal cases like the case of the million dollar duck. So this is then um, an archival question. Um, we're going to talk about next and one of the things that I, I love about the article is the methodological challenge you raise um, when you talk about the risk of perhaps losing sight of Aboriginal peoples if we only start study canonical formal documents um, and you talk a little bit about uh, what Borderlands history has done for you and the way that you use and interpret it so could you tell us a little bit about what that's done for you? Yeah, um, Borderlands history, as I understand it, is a field that has emerged um, in the earlier uh, regard to kind of uh, colonisation or at least colonial encounters uh, uh, in earlier periods of North American uh, history. And it's a way of thinking about those more sort of ambiguous, amorphous spaces of encounter. Um, growing out of a, a literature concerned with what Mary Louise Pratt called contact zones or Richard White called the middle ground, places where natives and newcomers were negotiating power, economics, uh, intimacy 
um, and a uh, kind of so a more sort of fluid space. Now it's not a literature that's generally been applied to more later forms of colonization um, and to the later 20th century when we usually what we usually understand to have happened is that the settler state has uh, become a much more uh, settled phenomenon and non-negotiable phenomenon um, but what I was trying to play with was thinking about this space uh, of um, uh, this kind of space that was considered to be pre-political um, as a space of borderlands where uh, those negotiations actually um, could happen and were, uh, were uh, quite dramatic um, in many ways um, and partly because it wasn't uh, the Canadian North wasn't, just like the Australian North, a classic settler colonial space. As Nick mentioned, the, the majority populations in these areas were um, Indigenous rather than white settlers. Mm. So it's a um, methodolo methodology often applied to earlier time periods in history of nation states you've brought you know, closer to the, to the current day in, in really productive ways. And... While doing this, you talk about pushing back against the logic of the legal archive. So what does that mean to you? Right. Um, I was thinking about some recent work in legal history, uh, which has begun to question uh, an older form of telling legal history based on the big cases, the big legal cases, um, which usually serve as precedents in common law systems for judges as they uh, make new decisions. Um, and one of the points that's made about that, of course, is that um, that kind of does a kind of violence in the sense that it ignores all sorts of other uh, cases, um, legal arguments and so forth uh, that don't necessarily make it into uh, ongoing legal debates that aren't necessarily kind of live to lawyers but nonetheless can tell us really important things about the space of law and how law might be punctured or negotiated especially by um, marginal or subaltern actors. So these big legal cases have marginalised these smaller cases. So what I want to do now is kind of um, uh, think more about the ways in which these borderland spaces, the way that you've used them in the article, allow us to zoom in on these one-to-one -one contacts between people. So this is where the duck really matters. Um, and of course, the article starts with this encounter between a duck hunter and a cop uh, in one of these borderland spaces. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you use this small scale to talk about a much larger turning point in history of uh, Indigenous politics? Yeah, I mean, for me, history is always an intimate undertaking and um, I love reading histories that are peopled and that give us a sense of the texture of interactions between people. Um, so it's probably partly a, a kind of um, aesthetic um, preference that I have for, for telling and, and re reading and writing history in that way. Um, but I think it's also, it is a, a sort of rhetorical trick in, in a sense that um, by becoming invested in the stories of these very particular actors in this unexpected space, um, that the reader then is prepared to go along with you as you narrate the um, enlarged kind of the 
as you start to tell a story in broader and broader terms, and that that allows you a kind of purchase on that bigger story that you might not otherwise have. Um, so yeah, so the texture of the interactions are important to me um, for their own sakes, but also because they enable you then to hold on to something as you uh, start to tell a larger story. So what you're doing, Miranda, um, in contradistinction to a lot of predecessors in who addressed this area. You're not talking about a big official archive created by lawyers. This is history on the ground between actual people. And uh, history is, of course, the amassing of many of these sorts of experiences, so you're fo focusing on that dynamic. I can hear echoes in that with the Australian situation, as I'm sure you can as well, and I'm struck by one thing. Uh, you're giving voice in an almost literal sense to your historical actors and it strikes me as no accident that recently the statement from the heart that we are all familiar with called for a voice to parliament. Um, the Aboriginal peoples of this nation wanted to speak. Um, so that's one possible echo to continue that metaphor. Um, what would you say, if any, are the most important implications of what you're doing for our setting? Can one make that connection? Our setting in Australia, yes, you mean? Yeah. I think one of the things I learned actually through, in a way, through the complicated process of reviewing, of having the article reviewed and responding to those reviews, I mentioned earlier that it forced me to really dig into the evidence that I had which in terms of Michael Sikke's own voice, his own writings, was not very much. Um, but it made me really pay very close attention to what I did have, what was available to me, what transcripts, the brief court transcripts that I had, a petition or two that he had authored. Um, it helped me to pay very close attention to what he was saying and to really try um, to mix my metaphors, to listen to what he was saying and not assume that I already knew what he was saying just because these petitions and the transcript was in English. Um, in fact, I had to pay attention to the, uh, the phraseology he was using and um, what seemed to be uh, the sort of hierarchy of importance that he gave, for instance, paying attention to the fact that family and kin networks underplayed this whole story. Um, that what people sometimes refer to as a hunter ethic was clearly very important to him. Um, so translating that to other scenes, I think, it's a, uh, to me, it's a matter of paying very close attention to um, not just what people are saying, but also how they say it, and therefore um, how they say things, and particularly people who don't often or don't always get... Uh, uh, an easy voice, um, uh, easily translatable into um, public discourse, really paying close attention to how they're saying what they're saying, I think is, is something that I think we should think about carefully in Australia. I think your method actually reminds us of how infrequently we hear Aboriginal people speaking in any setting. Right. Uh, so that your method has something to say about how we should actually engage. And a that. diversity. I mean, I think one of the yes. problems that's happened in Australia is that often a very few number of spokespeople, often men, are being asked to or turned to for their political statements on X, Y or Z, but you don't hear from a larger um, and more diverse range of Aboriginal voices. Yes, indeed. 
So, Miranda, how complicated is it for a white, university-educated New Zealand woman to write about a subject like this? Um, it's definitely something I have thought about a lot and paused over. I'm um, white, not indigenous. This is not my story. Um, and for some people that would actually mean they wouldn't write this history, they wouldn't feel comfortable at all telling this history. Um, so the reckoning that I um, have kind of played through in my head in thinking about this is that um, I still think it's an important story to tell. I've got the skills and expertise now to be able to tell it. Um, and I've tried to do so in a way that is as open um, to, uh, <coughs> to other voices as possible, um, as, as is possible for me, um, and to get in touch with um, the Yellow Knives uh, Dene First Nation office about some of the research as well. Um, so it's not, uh, I don't think there are easy answers to the sort of ethical dilemmas and politics of representation uh, in this field um, and that this field, thinking about this field generates. Um, and I think you should always pause and think carefully about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, but I don't think you should uh, just censor yourself um, because you're not uh, uh, because you're not a member of a particular community. Um, I see history as a dialogic enterprise, um, and so I think taking that seriously means actually being prepared to enter into a dialogue with people, even people you don't know, even historical actors. This is, after all, what we tell our students all the time, isn't it? That the history is a conversation, and we don't get firm final answers, we generate more questions and we keep talking. Absolutely. Which is, is actually a good way of rounding this off, I think. Thank you so much, Miranda, for talking to us about this work. Um, we hope people will go and read the article, uh, of course, uh, as a result of this. But I think we can say with some confidence that we now know why the duck went to the Canadian Supreme Court. So we've done our job. There's only one question left, which is who gets the bill? Oh, Nick, leave it alone. And what will we do next? I apologise. We'll stop there. <laughs> Remember that you can download this episode of How Was It Really from our website, where you will also find information, links to the articles we've been discussing. See you next time. How Was It Really? It's written, recorded and produced by the Department of History at the University of Sydney. Sydney.